0: Our sermon text reading is from Mark 6, 1 through 6. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is he not the carpenter, the son of Mary, brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are there not his sisters here with us? They took offense at him, and Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown among his relatives in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God.
1: Well, uh, we've been in a series, of course, in the Gospel of Mark, looking at the life of Jesus. And before I go on, I want to make mention, uh, if you haven't already, I want you to pick up uh, this book, Dane Ortlund's book, uh, Gentle and Lowly. Excellent, excellent book. Really, if you really want to get into the life of Jesus, not just in Mark's Gospel, but really just kind of see, man, what does it mean that the the Savior of the universe, the one uh, that... Flung the the Stars in the Sky was Gentle and Lowly, the name of this title of the book. So uh, this is our gift to you. Uh, We gave you guys earlier a gift through uh, the the Gospel of Mark, and ability to kind of take notes and that sort of thing. But this is the second gift here in the series that we want for you today. I know some of you already have this, but if you don't, please pick up a copy on your way out. Uh, We should have enough copies for everyone. So I just want to make mention of that here at the outset. Well, the last three weeks have been uh, pretty, I think, powerful in this story, right, and so what did we see three weeks ago? Remember the Sea of Galilee, the storm, and just with one word, uh, the seas are calmed by Jesus. And then two weeks ago, when Mike was preaching, right, we see the power over the over the realm of the spiritual realm, the, the demon possessed man, the legion, many demons being cast out by one word of command. And then last week, with one word, right, arise, and His power over death itself. So, if this is the only thing you knew about the story. You say, man, Jesus, you are on a roll right now. Like it is, go- you're crushing it. Like you are, I mean, you're at the top of your game right now, right? And then we come to this passage. Right? So he goes home, right? Uh, but there's no victory parade after winning the national championship for Jesus. And we're going to get into that here as to the reason why. And it comes down to a word there in verse 3. The word for offense is scandalon. We get the word scandal from it in our language. And what I want to suggest here at the outset is this, that, that no, it's not just, you know, those podunk villagers in Nazareth. It's not just those people who are on the outside of the church who are offended by Jesus. We are offended by Jesus too. And guess what? Because we're going to find out in a way we should be, surprisingly. And so this morning, I don't have points for you. I know. I know. Hold it together. Hold it together. I've got a statement for you this morning. This is a short passage, okay? I've got a statement for you. And uh, we're going to break the statement down. And here's the statement. The more you think you know all there is to know about Jesus, the less you will change in your life. The more you think you know, it's a paradox. The more you think you know about who Jesus is, the less you actually change. So that's what we're going to get into here. And we're going to start, of course, verse 1. Here it is again. He went away from there, and he came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. So remember he's been in Capernaum. This is where the little girl was raised from the dead. All these amazing, powerful miracles were taking place. And so so Jesus leaves from there and you can imagine the conversation with the disciples. He's like, Hey guys, hey guys, you want to go back home to where you want to see where I grew up? Oh, man. And so for the disciples, here's how the movie script is rolling. They're like, oh, yeah, man, victory parade. That's where we're headed. We're headed to Victory Main Street right there in Nazareth. Of course, they didn't really have a main street. It was like a podunk village of like 100 people, basically. In fact, Nazareth, uh, according to John chapter 1, the disciple Nathaniel, he's told that Jesus is from Nazareth, and there's that famous line. says, Nazareth, what good could possibly come from Nazareth? I mean, there's a reputation that this little Simpleville had, right? That was very different here. And so this is the the ethos that Jesus is coming into. Now, imagine if you went to Nazareth at the time of Jesus and you said, hey, uh, local boy went big. I'm I'm curious, man on the street interview. uh, What do you know about Jesus? Now, here's the thing. Everyone knew Jesus, like, and not just because he was now famous, but because it was a small village. And in a conservative traditional environment in Palestine 2,000 years ago, you knew everything about your neighbors. Everything. And some of you were like, it's not that different today in a small village where I grew up, right? Some of you say, that's right. And that's exactly right. And so they knew everything. But here's, here's what I want you to remember here. What is it that they remembered about Jesus? What do we remember about Jesus? Everything that we think about Jesus has to do with the story of Mark. Hearing in the gospel. But for the villagers, what were they saying with the man on the street in an interview? Oh, yeah, I remember when I used to change his diapers. Oh, yeah, I, I remember when he would play hide and go seek behind my house. He was really good at hiding, by the way. Like, if he didn't want to reveal himself, he didn't reveal himself, you know? Or I, I remember, like, man, he would run the 100-yard dash. Man, his run was divine, right? You know, that's so bad. Okay, so you're, you're, that's what you know about Jesus. Jesus is a certain caricature. You remember Jesus in his early years. I know I'm going to, some of you are going to say, I had so much respect for you, Scott, until you mentioned this movie, Talladega Nights. Okay, so Talladega Nights, uh, Will Ferrell comedy. I know Mike told me earlier, I thought for sure he was a fan. He said, not a fan. But, I, but sometimes I just like uh, a, a good Will Ferrell comedy. If you know the story, it's really satire about Southern culture, about NASCAR culture in particular. And so the Ricky Bobby is a NASCAR legend, and Cal is his sidekick, and, and John O'Reilly plays him. And, and there's this uh, scene where, where they're, they're saying grace, and Ricky Bobby, head of the family, right? He's saying grace, and they're having this wonderful meal of KFC, uh, Domino's, pizza, you know, very classic meal here, right? And, uh, and so he begins to pray to sweet baby Jesus. If you know this if you know this three minute deal here is a sweet baby Jesus and he, he gives into a tiny little Jesus. And uh, and his wife interrupts him and says, Ricky, you know that Jesus grew up, right? He's like, Well, if you want to pray to the growing up Jesus, you go ahead and pray. I'm praying to the Christmas Jesus. That's the Jesus I prefer. Right? The so, little tiny, eight pounds, six ounce Jesus. Uh, he goes on and on. You've seen that scene like this. It's very irreverent, but it's still quite funny. Um, well, see, that was Talladega Nights. You know, that's what it was like for Nazareth. They're like, We know Christmas baby Jesus. We did a little swaddling in the clothes cloth uh, Jesus. That was the Jesus for them, which I think now sets up verse two. Now, what does it say here? And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, marveling, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? So local boy gone big comes home, but but the but the response is first it's marvel like they're like didn't see this coming now why was that why did they marvel why did they not see this coming here's why because because back then there were two tracks in fact it was funny I was thinking about this in Europe it's not that different today where if uh, uh, Karis's uh, really best childhood friend uh, moved to Switzerland and when she was thirteen. Uh, once they moved back to Switzerland, when she turned 13, there was one of two tracks, an academic tra- uh, track or a uh, tray route, basically. And so basically, based on your scores determines which way you go, right? Well, the same thing. Jesus was a blue-collar worker. His father, Joseph, was a carpenter, although the word there can be stonemason as well. So he was in some sort of blue-collar industry, which is very typical of a small village and a small town. That would be the case today in most small towns as well. A lot of blue-collar work. And so Jesus was on that track. And so when Jesus comes home, this is, this is a surprise of surprises. This guy's a rabbi. What in the world was he doing? He's on the wrong track. But as they were listening to him, they're saying, but no rabbi have we ever heard who teaches like this. Not only was he not schooled in the tradition of the rabbis, now he's teaching unlike any other rabbi. It's like he went to Harvard and Yale and then some. Like this guy is absolutely brilliant the way he teaches. Didn't see this coming. But then they go, wait a minute though. Wait, whoa, whoa. But he's a local boy. Caricature. This can't, wait, there's something wrong here. Now, Mark doesn't tell us what he said that was so offensive. But guess what? Luke tells us. And so I want to read to you what Luke says, because most scholars believe this is the same scene, basically, but it's Luke's capturing of it, and he tells us what Jesus read. And as a rabbi, what he would have done was he would have read the scroll. In this case, it was Isaiah, and then he would have done a homily right after that. So listen to what it says, Luke 4, 16 through 21. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, first of all, I can't imagine being told, well, here's the passage you're preaching in one minute. That's a lot of training, uh, a lot of courage that have to be molded together. But that's what would happen for the rabbi. They would be handed a scroll. And this one was Isaiah. Now, the passage, why this passage? Remember, he says that he looked for, what did he do? What was he saying? Today this is being fulfilled in your presence. What was he saying? The Messiah has come. Remember, the very beginning of of Mark's Gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand, he said. And then he began his teaching ministry. Same thing is being recorded here, friends. The same thing is being recorded. And, And can you imagine... I mean, can you imagine, we're told, and let's move on to verse 3 now. Is is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and, and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Now, now, you got to remember, we've already seen this in Mark chapter 3. Jesus already has some conflict with his family, right? Remember that? He had a conflict. And who's my family? It's not, Clearly, it's not my biological family because they think I'm crazy. Right. Okay. Yeah, well, think, think about this. Your 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 brother, all right, is Jesus. Right. Now he had three or four brothers. Clearly, he had at least a couple sisters. So it's a pretty big family, typical. And can you imagine being the brother or the sister of Jesus? And then he comes home. Right, he comes home after being gone. He's not—he's not the blue-collar work anymore. He's surprising people. He's not—he's—he's he's not the caricature that they thought. And—and and, you know, what are they—what are—what are they remembering about Jesus? What are they thinking about Jesus? You know, they're folding their arms in the corner, saying, "Oh, here we go again, messianic complex, right? <laughs> Ultimate messianic complex. Oh, he's always the good boy. He never got into trouble, right? You know, he was always—I was always the one in the corner, that sort of thing, like that. No wonder." No wonder his family's saying, oh, here we go. They're rolling their eyes, I guarantee you. They're rolling their eyes. And because it's a small village, they're all saying, this cannot be. They went from, I want you to see it, they went from marveling, they went from saying, whoa, we've seen something, to unbelief. It's not enough to be wowed by Jesus. Listen to that. It's not enough. That, that is not the guarantee of belief. For us, and certainly that's the case here. Um, in the case of of Jesus, and so just what happens in a small town happens here for Jesus. A label is placed upon him, and he gets mislabeled. And here's what I want to make the connection with us in this first part of the statement here. I think we do the exact same thing today, you know, or we have the last several centuries for sure. I want to show you a picture. This is a picture of. Uh, do we have it here? Yeah, so this is a picture of Thomas Jefferson's Bible. You're saying, well, that doesn't look very um, like a Bible. Well, that's because Thomas Jefferson loved the teaching of Jesus, but he loathed the supernatural portions of the scriptures. And so what he did was he took a razor and and he, he cut out everything that he liked from the gospel account. And so every part of the teaching, so he, he developed a moral philosophy. He thought that Jesus was a great moral philosopher, but he was deeply offended by the supernatural elements. Stuff like John, chapter four, John 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And elsewhere where he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Right? In all these different places where he's like, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, where he's declaring himself to be the Messiah. These are places where Jefferson's like, nope, not going there. You know? And, and I know that here in our city, here in our neighborhood in particular, I know what we do. I know that we can say that, man, there's people outside this church, and they're like Jesus. They like Jesus when he's a good justice warrior. They like him when uh, when he goes after the greedy, he speaks truth of power, right? And that's true, that there are people who say, I like that part of Jesus, but I don't like some of the stuff he says about, you know, sexuality or or, um, or the treatment of a family and so forth. There are parts of that, I don't like that. But you know what? We do that too right here in the church. Man, we do it just as much. You know why? Because for a lot of us, we grew up in the church. And because of that, Jesus got really familiar to us. Really familiar. There's a, a phrase, you've heard it, familiarity breeds Contempt. And I think that, that it would not be on the outside contempt in the way that we might define contempt. But for a lot of us, we say, man, I know Jesus. Yeah, I've done that thing. Yeah, I, I became a Christian. And yeah, I, I tithe and I go to church on a regular basis, things like that, you know. And, and, but listen, here's the key, okay? What was the message that was rejected? What was it? The kingdom of God has come. What he was saying was, on the Messiah. That what he was saying was, if you want to know what God's will is for your life, copy my life. Now, what was that life? Oh, some of the things he did. Turning over the tables. Turning over religion, as it were, itself. Uh, saying things like this, that anyone who, who um, you know, do not murder, but I say anyone uh, who has called their brother an idiot, holds someone else in kin, they're guilty of murder. Right? Or, or like, um, man... The woman who gave, who tithed well above and beyond the religious leaders who gave sacrificially, that's a woman like you should follow like that. And what you hear is when you hear those stories in Jesus' teaching, you begin to feel it as a Christian sometimes. You're saying, oh my gosh, he wants to go there in my life. I don't know. Is there? I wonder, is there anyone in here right now who's having a hard time forgiving someone? You know? Uh, is there someone that wants reconciliation in your life, and you're just like, I'm holding on. I'm not going to. I do not want to forgive uh, because of what's been done to me. If Scott, if he knew what had been done to me. Like, I know they want forgiveness. No, I'm. Not. And Jesus says, 70 times 7 to the person that wants reconciliation, 70 times 7, don't stop forgiving. Be gracious, merciful. Oh, my gosh. Suddenly you can say, wait a minute. There is something in my life that Jesus offends me for. Here's the thing. I want you to hear this. Please, if you hear nothing else, please hear this. If there's not a place in your life right now where Jesus is offending you, you may not know Him the way you think you do. Jesus should offend you. There should be some place in your life because we're not home yet. We don't fully look like Christ. And so what does He do? He goes after us to those places and He challenges us in those places where He says, keep going, but man, we need to work on this. And then we go, "Uh uh-uh, no, no. I'm not so sure about that. Come on. Kind of thing like that. Well, that's the evidence here that we think we know him, but we don't. Because we know him when he offends us. We know him when he speaks to those places in our life and in our in our in our relationships and our work and so forth. He speaks to those places and, and we get fearful. And and we go, Man, if I let you in here, I don't know if I can give up financial security. I don't know if I can give up this this track that I'm on in my career. I don't know if I can give up this relationship. You know, I don't know. I, I just, I'm, can I trust you? I don't know, right? And so I, I want to ask you that question here at the end of this first part. And and that is, can Jesus offend you? Does does he have the ability to offend you? Okay, because I think that's what the, the, the texture is getting at. There's a second part of that. And as if he doesn't offend us, in the same way. I know they were offended, but I think you'll see the paradox here. If, if we don't allow him, then we won't change our lives and we'll miss out on the best part of what it means to be a Christian. So now look with me at verses five and six. This is where it ends. And he could do no mighty work there except uh, that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. So how does the passage begins? They were astonished, they marveled at Jesus. And then how's the passage in? Jesus marveled at them. <laughs> right? Like they, He was astonished. They were astonished. Like, whoa, what have we seen here? And then he's astonished. Wow, what am I seeing here? You see. And, and oh, please hear this. Remember, Jesus for three texts in a row has demonstrated power over creation, over the spiritual realm, and over death itself. So this is not an issue of that somehow it's kryptonite in Nazareth. He's, surrounded, he's Superman. He's surrounded by kryptonite. And he has no power suddenly, right? That's not the issue here. What it is, is what we talked about last week. Remember the woman who grasped hold of the cloak of Jesus? And then he would, remember what Jesus says. If you're here last week, you remember this. He said, he says, uh, because of your faith, woman, you are healed. Remember that? Now, remember what we said? He wasn't saying, oh, it was like magic incantation. Your faith is what actually saves you. No, it was his power of salvation. It was his healing power that came out of him that actually healed the woman. But remember what we did say was that faith must be a conduit. Faith must be a channel in which the power of Jesus works. Primarily when Jesus works in our life, it is through faith. It is through a open heart is what that means. It is through an openness that says, Jesus, I believe that you can do mighty and wondrous things for my life here. And so I'm opening my life to your work in my life. That's a faithful heart that's looking for God's power. Right. I remember what we said last week. So that that's not a guarantee that man, if you pray in faith, like you're going to get the things that you're praying for. Remember, we talked about it last week. I don't have time to go in that as a review this week. But what it does mean, what it does mean is that Jesus will not waste his power in places where there's unbelief. You need to hear that. Jesus simply will not cast pearls before swine, he says elsewhere. He you know, said you know, that he's not going to work in places where people are like, I- I'm not interested, the unbelief, even among his own people here. Now, I think that what he's driving at, what we should see here, is that he's looking for faith. What, remember, what was the narrative there in Nazareth? It was a control narrative, I call it. In other words, it was a story that says, Jesus, you're supposed to be this. Uh, and, and I think for the, for the people of Nazareth, for his brothers and sisters, and for the townspeople, It was a Jesus they could control. It was a Jesus that they knew. Of course, they didn't know him, paradoxically, but they thought they could control him. But remember what we said last week. Jesus, with his power over creation, over death itself, shows us that he's the one who's in control. We think we're in control of our narrative. We think that we're in control of our destiny. We think we're in control of our stories, right? And we're not. And this gets to the crux of what I think was most offensive of all. And what is the message of Jesus? What was the message there in Isaiah chapter 61, the scroll being unrolled? What was the message of Jesus in his ministry? In one word, grace. Now, why would that be offensive? Let me give you a story from the Old Testament by way of example. In 2 Kings chapter 5, there's a pretty well known story. It's a pretty crazy story, but a pretty well known story about uh, the commander of the Syrian armies, and his name is Naaman, right? And if you know the story of Naaman, right, we probably have taught it upstairs with our our children's ministry, but Naaman was this powerful uh, general. In fact, he was second in power in Syria only to the king himself. But guess what? He's got leprosy. Here's a man who has won all these victories on the battlefield. Here's a man with power, untold wealth. The amount of wealth that he has, according to the text, is in the millions of dollars by today's standards. This man is powerful. He is wealthy, but he has leprosy. He's powerless, you say. He has power, and yet he doesn't have power. And so what does he do? Well, there's, it turns out that because they subjugated Israel, they won't beat Israel in battle. Uh, one of the slaves was a young Israelite girl who's in the household of Naaman. And the household girl says, you know what? There's a prophet named Elisha back in Israel. And if you go to him, he can heal you. And he's like, let's do it. And so he gets a, a letter from the king And he brings it to the subjugated king of Israel. He's going to bring it to the prophet Elisha. And what he does as well as bringing his his pedigree, bringing these letters of power with him, he brings literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars with him. Why? Because he's going to buy his cure. And remember what happens? Elisha doesn't even meet him. He sends a messenger. And remember, through the messenger, Elisha says, hey, uh, here's what you do. You just go down the Jordan River, dunk yourself in there seven times, come out, you're healed. And Naaman, it says in the text, went away angry. He was enraged, actually, the text says. Why? Why? Because he thought he could earn his healing. But see, that's the nature of grace. Grace is saying you can bring your best game. You can bring your best talents. You can bring the best of your life. And it amounts to nothing. Only Jesus can heal you. In the river of life. Only, and what was the only thing required of Naaman? What was the only thing required of the people of Nazareth? What's the only thing required of us? Faith. That was the only thing. How many of you have, have ever received charity? You know, the word uh, charity comes from a Greek word, charis, for gift or grace, right? That's why we named our oldest charis, right? How many of you have ever received that and, and you feel this resistance in you? Why, why would anyone well because it's our human nature to resist grace, you see, we're offended, we can't earn it that offends us, you say see. see at the at the core of what keeps us and what keeps us in unbelief and what keeps us from the person of Jesus is resistance to grace in our lives. We have to surrender to religion or from religion, really We have to that's what that's what defines religion friends. Is the belief that we can earn something with God or the the deities, wherever you believe the divine powers to be, if you believe that there are are divine powers of some sort. And what Christianity says, what Jesus comes along, and he says, there's nothing here to earn. It's what I've earned for you. And the foreshadowing of rejection here is for what? It's a foreshadowing of the cross itself. The ultimate rejection. What does the book of John say? John chapter 1. He came into the world and his own people knew him not and rejected him. Mark is foreshadowing again what's happening here. And so, this morning, what do we need? We need to lose control. You have to lose control of your narrative. You have to. So I, I want to ask you here in the close, I want to ask you, are there parts of your story this morning where you're afraid to let Jesus in? Like, um, there's a narrative. You know, for me, for many years, I've shared some of this before, for me, for many years, it was around anger. You know, and how I would self-righteously kind of hold on to that. And, man, there are so many texts where Jesus speaks to anger. And, you know, I had to let that go. And and there are plenty of other things. You know, I'll spend the rest of my life learning to let things go. And you will, too. So what in your story right now, as I sit here, or as I stand here, you're sitting there, do you hear him say, man, I want to speak to that. Can I come in? Right now, you have a, a sign in your heart that says, no fishing. He says, I need a fish for disciples. I need a fish in your life right here. Let me tell you, it's scary. I'll never forget when we uh, first started this church, actually, before we started this church, uh, Kirsten and I were invited to do a destination wedding in Costa Rica. Okay, let me tell you, okay, that was awesome, right? You know, I was like, man, I mean, I just started as a pastor, and I was like, man, I'm invited, you know, all expense paid, a trip to Costa Rica, vacation included. I mean, this is a great gig that I get to do, hasn't happened since, by the way. It's been like 20 years, and it hasn't happened since. Uh, hint, hint, for those of you, no, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> but we're in Costa Rica, you know, and at the reception, it was a beautiful, uh, a beautiful reception. The wedding itself was right there on the beach with the water lapping on my toes. It's awesome, and uh, the reception is a gorgeous place, and uh, but it turned out at the reception, the uncle of the bride says some very Sexually suggestive and provocative things about the bride publicly. Now he'd been drinking too much. That's part of it, but it's very clear there's a narrative here. And a month later, um, we they, they say let's go out to dinner and celebrate. So we go out and and uh, we're, we're celebrating. And and then uh, we're, we're trying to be shepherds to them, um, and we brought it up. We, we said, hey, I, you know, it I, was a pretty abusive comment that was made, suggestive. Wonder how you're doing. Like that. Oh my gosh, the response was not what we expected. In 20 years of ministry, I've never felt physically threatened, but except for one time, and that was the time. The man, the husband, almost by the collar, it was like reaching across almost, didn't physically touch us, but I mean, even now telling that story, I can feel my heart racing. Like I remember the, just the threat. Uh, it wasn't existential threat. It was a very physical threat right there. And He says, you will never, ever talk about that. Ugh, and they walked out of the restaurant and we never saw them again. I mean, it was like just sudden, like we triggered something and a bomb went off. It was very clear. No, no, you're not allowed to go there. Now, for most of us in here, that's not our response to Jesus or a representative of Jesus, a pastor um, saying, can we go here? It'll be something else. We're more polite, let's say. But I want to ask you here, I want, to, I want to hit this hard. Are you willing to go there? Is there a place right now where the Spirit is speaking softly or maybe it's with a bullhorn? I want to go there with you. Can we go there? And the only way you can allow to know that you can let him in is to know that he's safe and that, that you can handle allowing him in this place of neglect or abuse, trauma, brokenness, sin, whatever it might be. So how do you do that? Here's where I close. Number one, there's a passage we're going to get to later on in the Gospel of Mark where a man says, in fact, we sang it in one of the songs this morning. Um, I believe, help my unbelief. We're going to come to that text. For some of you this morning, you're saying, I believe, but man, I've got some doubts. Like, there's a different kind of doubting. Like, there's a certain kind of doubt that's more cynical, like unbelief. Well, Jesus is not going to work here, that kind of thing like that. But there's another type of doubt that's a healthy doubt. Welcome, if that's where you're at today. Man, welcome like that. It's okay to have doubts about Jesus are who you say that you are. Bring those doubts to him, but bring your doubts, bring your unbelief and say, Jesus, I need your work in my story. Um, Don't don't allow you to pass through my village without doing powerful work in my life. Say, and here's the second thing, that is to marinate yourself in the story of Jesus. Look, you get to do that here in Mark's gospel with us together. But what do you do between the Sundays? I'm curious. What do you do? Is it something you put, go on autopilot and you're like, well, that's what I do on Sunday. Again, if that's what you do, you're misunderstanding, you're mislabeling Jesus. Jesus wants to speak in your life every moment of every day. He, he, wants, he wants to walk with you in intimacy. And so is he permitted to? And the way that you experience that is you marinate yourself in the Scriptures. You say, I want to know your word. You know, what does the writer of Hebrews say? Faith comes through hearing and hearing through what? The word of God. So I'm going myself. I want to know your word, Jesus. I want to know you. And here's the thing. The more that you get into the scriptures, the more that you study the word, the more that you invite your community to speak into your life through the word. And the more that Jesus says, I want to come in. And I want to sup with you. I want, to, I want to eat a meal of intimacy with you. And uh, so I just want to invite you, just as your pastor and friend, I want to invite you between the Sundays. Where might Jesus be saying, I want to come in. Will you let me in? Let's pray. Father, uh, and we 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 want a different response. On one hand, um, we don't want the offense of saying that you are the scandal itself. On the other hand, um, we need you to paradoxically offend us in the right ways. In the sense that, in the places of offense, we say, "Now my heart is open." Yes, there are places in my life, places in in my finances, in my relationships, and so forth. Yes, there are places in my life. For Jesus, uh, you want to do work and I'm not letting you in. I have this secret in my life. No one knows about it. I don't want to let you in. I don't want to let anyone in the church in. Father, I pray, would you reveal yourself that you are not a secretive God, but you're one who became vulnerable to the point of dying on a cross and raised to new life. And so raise us in the power of the name of Jesus Christ. Raise us to resurrection life between the Sundays and here on the Sabbath, here on Sunday. Raise us to new life. Tell us the story. May it be fresh, full of power for us as we do life in your kingdom. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.